This is the Shift Podcast. This is Martin Strong sitting in for Shane this morning. And uh, today on the Shift Daily Podcast, millions of people in Turkey and Syria have been devastated by the massive earthquake. So what can we do now? Fatuma Sirde is with the Humanitarian Coalition, and she tells us what we can do to help the people impacted by the earthquake. Uh, the last Boeing 747 has left the factory, and we want to know what made it so special. Dave Frank, executive director of the BC Aviation Council, tells us why the 747 changed the way we fly and how it literally revolutionized the world. Are you okay with handshakes? How about working overtime? All of that on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. I know... It feels kind of helpless to watch the images of what's going on in Syria and Turkey in the wake of that big earthquake. Uh, I I saw a photo today of a newborn baby who was born while the mother was trapped under rubble and she passed away, but the baby survived. And it's just one one of thousands of heart-wrenching stories from this disaster. So it does, it it feels very uh, helpless, but you can help. Chorus has now teamed up with the Humanitarian Coalition to help raise funds to uh, go to people dealing with this. The Humanitarian Coalition is an organization that brings together uh, all the big leading aid organizations to really target where the funds go and where they're the most needed. And you can go to humanitariancoalition.ca to get more information. And one of the organizations in the coalition is Oxfam. And Fatuma Shade is a humanitarian unit manager for Oxfam. And uh, Fatuma is here with us now. And uh, thanks for being here. Yeah, no, and, and thanks for having me. Um, I think as all Canadians are seeing on their screens um, and through social media, the, the scale of this disaster is immense. Um, it's it's incredibly dire. It has hit a region. So, of course, um, both uh, Turkey and Syria, particularly northwest Syria, are critically affected. Um, the death toll at this point is being reported at uh, seven more than 7,000. And we are, you know, particularly with these types of emergencies, we do see that as search and rescue operations continue, that number will continue to climb, um, unfortunately. Uh, So there's about 13 million people. I think WHO, the World Health Organization, is saying that about, um, actually 23 million people across Syria and Turkey are affected. Um, In Turkey alone, it's about 13 million people. That's almost one sixth of the population of Turkey. Um, And it is, like you mentioned, a region that's already quite uh, impacted by humanitarian needs. So just on the the side of in Turkey, um, there's about 1.8 million Syrian refugees. So very much living in um, difficult conditions to begin with, with very high needs, uh, Northwest Syria on the other side, of course, already been impacted by a 12 year civil war. Um, Infrastructure has, you know, even even before the earthquake um, destroyed families facing high humanitarian needs, about 4 million displaced Syrians. Um, So the needs before the earthquake were immense. um, And now after this earthquake, it's just, it's incredibly devastating. And in terms of aid, I, I guess time is very crucial because they're 
you know, they have to get to these people to save them. And yeah, and, and there are people who probably will die without aid. So, so yeah, like time is crucial, right? Mm-hmm. Incredibly. Yeah. No, we're definitely uh, in a race against time right now. So the the first urgent priority for humanitarian actors and obviously governments is the search and rescue operation. So that is ongoing and will continue. Um, the weather has obviously been hampering that. So it is the dead of winter near freezing temperatures. Um, there was there is a snowstorm and rain actually passing. So it's just, you know, uh, and just adding to the difficulty of our already uh, really crisis situation of being able to reach people under the rubble. Um, it's also affected access. So a lot of the roads, for example, getting into northwest Syria from Turkey or um, even getting to communities in Turkey that are affected has been incredibly challenging. Yeah. So it is a race against time. Yeah, and travel and access to the affected areas, like you say. Uh, but Oxfam has people on the ground. Uh, all the time, surveying where the money needs to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so how how have efforts been in that department to get getting your people to where they need to be? Yeah, so in, in Syria, Oxfam has been incredibly present. So we have in Northwest Syria, particularly um, staff, we have our office there. Uh, I think one thing that you know, we're hearing from our teams is that staff themselves are affected that obviously, you know, they are the first responders, but also are um, having to deal with this crisis and, uh, you know, search for loved ones. So that's also been challenging. You know, once a disaster happens, the first responders are also impacted. Uh, yeah. But we're there, we're assessing. Um, we have already uh, a needs assessment, really looking at things like water, shelter, um, food, what are really the immediate things that, you know, communities there's people on the streets right now who've left their homes, um, are seeking shelter in schools, um, other public uh, settings that haven't been destroyed. Um, so we're really assessing the situation. In Turkey, we have teams that have left um, Istanbul and are currently present uh, in Gaziantep, which is one of the regions that was highly affected, um, working with first responders with the national um, disaster coordination teams to really um, assess the damage and then start providing the support that's needed. Yeah. And in terms of just the raw terror of this, it's really quite amazing. I mean, we see all the images. I just saw the photo of a man holding the hand of his daughter who was, who was buried in rubble. And it's, it's, it's completely heartbreaking. And, uh, yeah. but as I was saying, in, in terms of, of, of terror, there's aftershocks. And these aftershocks seem particularly cruel because people are already afraid to go home. And uh, it, it must be a situation that's changing all the time. Exactly. So it is, um, you know, the aftershocks are ongoing and people are um, already, you know, homes, buildings, the level of infrastructure that's been destroyed is um, really just can't count at this point. So it's that ongoing fear of even if they are in, let's say, a, a, a center that was set up for survivors, a collective center, there's still that really large fear of, you know what's going to happen is this safe um also the psychological trauma that come that comes with that so knowing that both the communities in turkey and syria were um a lot of refugees and displaced populations that have dealt with war for 12 years so it's you know that that psychological trauma and re-traumatizing really um the earthquake and then also uh yeah um just I think loved ones having to obviously deal with all the aftermath of seeing their their families under rubble and um, 
So it's, yeah, I, I can't imagine what uh, communities are going through. And I think all our hearts are with the people of Syria and Turkey right now. And I guess right now, the best thing that people can do is send money to go to Oxfam.org or humanitariancoalition.ca um, and just yeah. money, get some money there, right? Exactly, exactly. Just at this point, any donation, small or big, means, you know, it means a lot. So um, Oxfam is part of the Humanitarian Coalition, which is a coalition of uh, 12 different Canadian NGOs um, that are active, you know, have our appeals going and are ready to respond. So really donating. Um, we have heard of some in-kind donations. So there is a Turkish diaspora population. So that maybe at some point there may be opportunities to support um in in different ways but for now really making a donation is where um I, the, we need the support yeah and i i guess in in the organization of oxfam uh it's times like this when uh, just things get very busy i guess you're a very busy person right now yes we've been up since you know some of our teams have been up since three o'clock in the morning i've been up since five so we're really at this point it's you know, trying to get the information out. Um, you know, it's. I think everyone is aware it's in the media, um, but really highlighting the humanitarian needs so that this is um, this is devastating, and everyone's seeing the scale of the damage um, and how providing an opportunity for Canadians to support, um, understanding what's happening, what type of response is needed, and I think also looking forward that um, this is going to be a huge recovery process. This is not, um, you know few weeks in the making this is you know I, I think i heard turkish gdp has taken like a two or three percent hit like the, the level of damage and economic damage um is going to be felt for years so yeah that we we are on the ground and we'll stay on the ground our guest is fatuma shade a humanitarian unit manager at oxfam and uh, oxfam's website is oxfam.org there's also humanitariancoalition.ca and that's a coalition of organizations like Oxfam, and they are in there now, and uh, they need help. They need cash, and uh, it's it's a pretty serious situation, obviously. And in the big picture, we talked a little bit about um, the humanitarian need that was already there in Syria and parts mm -hmm. of Turkey, um, and Oxfam is all over the world. Uh, how many people around the world right now need humanitarian help and and how does that compare historically so then i mean the number of people in humanitarian need is really it's increasing year to year so we, we do um it, it depends on each country of course so we look at the countries and the number of people in need um globally though i think especially for Oxfam and most organizations, we're following these climate-driven disasters. Um, so, you know, for us, for example, looking at the hunger crisis in East Africa, the drought situation, the Pakistan floods, that year on, um, the level of crises and uh, climate-driven crises are just escalating. So we're seeing very, you know, short periods of time, just huge emergencies happening back to back, which is leading to increased displacement, um, communities really being, you know, having to flee from their land. It's not just conflict anymore. It's not, um, you know, geopolitics that's causing these displacements, but um, it's, there's, there's just so many factors at place that it's created a perfect storm, unfortunately, that globally, the numbers uh, continue to rise. So organizations like Oxfam are not going to be redundant anytime soon. 
No, unfortunately, we always say we want to work ourselves out of a job. I mean, that's, you know, it's, we, I'd love to do that. Um, it's, it, you know, we just keep continue to advocate for, you know, the public and particularly even governments. I mean, we're quite encouraged that the, the Canadian government committed 10 million for Turkey. Um, there are a lot of other governments that also need to step up, you know, search and rescue teams have been sent, but the, the funding for the humanitarian side of it is still slow to come. So um, really, I think that we as the Canadian public can continue to play a role to push our governments to support um, and, and step up in these situations and also yeah, just continue to raise awareness. And Oxfam is, is trying to do that with working with communities on the ground, women leaders on the ground, and uh, trying to make an impact that's lasting. So, I mean, how political does Oxfam get? I mean, do you see, obviously, uh, climate change is uh, something that's going to cause a lot of humanitarian crisis. But what? A, how do you see the way governments, world governments are going? Are, are you... Uh, you know, heartened or disheartened by the way the world is going politically? Do you think that uh, it's just going to make things worse? Yeah, I think, I mean, from our side, it's really trying to respond to the, the, the humanitarian needs. So for us, it's really looking at the people that are affected by various, um, various issues. And some of those, yes, are definitely political um, and, you know, potentially government causing more harm um, in certain situations uh, and we as an as a non-governmental organization as a humanitarian organization really uphold humanitarian principles of uh, of neutrality and and try to just be present for responding to those needs um, and advocating for communities that are affected really to have a, at the, a seat at the table at the end of the day they know their solutions they know um, what the problem is so for us it's really empowering those local voices and local leaders yeah, that was kind of a big question to lay on you there. <laughs> um, and, and of course, as I say, right now, at this moment in time, giving money is just a great thing for people to do. Uh, the humanitariancoalition.ca, oxfam.org are the places to go get more information. But you, you can be uh, confident that that money is going where it should go. And, uh, and that's great. And that's what people need to do right now. And all the attention is focused on this because it's what we see in the news. But what about those days when specific events like this aren't making the news, even though people are still suffering? Mm -hmm. So um, I guess my, here's another big question. Yeah. <laughs> what can people do to be part of the solution? Like just everyday Canadians, what can they do to be part of the yeah. solution and not part of the problem 365 days a year it's a really good question and thanks <laughs> thanks for um <laughs> for bringing attention to it because it's true sometimes you know there's a, most of the crises that oxam is present in are considered forgotten crises it's not the ones that make the headlines or make media um so we're, we're present in countries where, uh, for example, example, Bangladesh, the Rohingya refugee response, still a large number of uh, Rohingya refugees that are displaced in Bangladesh. Uh, we're present in what we call uh, the Horn of Africa food crisis. Um, so the number of the displacement that's happening in the Somalia drought situation, which really is leading to quite high levels of food insecurity and um, to some degree, you know, getting close to what we would call a, a famine potentially or famine-like conditions so we are following those 
um, those crises that don't make the media and continuing to try to fundraise for it. They're very high on our priority list. Um, so we try to do interviews like this throughout the year and try to push the media. So I think for me, I'd, I'd recommend one as a Canadian public, just to increase our awareness, you know, whatever, get out there. Um, there's opportunities to volunteer for different organizations. Um, as I think as, as the media covering stories that don't really make the, um, make the news. Um, and then I think, yeah, reaching out to um, any of our public offices. I think that's an opportunity to try to, if, you know, we, we see an issue that's happening globally that you're passionate about, um, that's affecting people in their lives, that uh, try to reach out to your local councilman or, um, you know, hold a very small uh, fundraiser with you and your family. Uh, so we really think there's there's ways to, to help support and fundraise and feel free to check out the Oxfam website for some opportunities as well to, to contribute. Mm -hmm. And if you don't mind me asking, how did you get into uh, working for Oxfam? How did you get into the humanitarian world? Yeah, no problem. So I've I've um, I've been in the humanitarian space for about fifteen years. Um, I, uh, you know, from Ottawa, studied at Carleton, studied international development, and always, you know, um, had an interest, a personal interest. So I am a Somali Canadian. Um, so obviously, come from a background of of war, conflict, and displacement. Um, so that has always been close to me and and had the opportunity as a student um, uh, to, to travel and live in various parts of East Africa, um, visited Asia, and yeah, just really wanted to be engaged and support um, humanitarian crises and particularly how to work with communities. Um, I think for me, it's really about not just coming in and you know we're not we're not here to tell people what's wrong and how to fix things but work with communities that are affected and have been with Oxfam Canada for about four years now um, and uh, incredibly proud of the work that Oxfam does and uh, their their approach which is very much working with uh, particularly women rights organization women leaders who are the first responders when it comes to emergencies. Well, thank you very much for all your hard work, especially the last few days, because I know you're staying up late and you got up early. And uh, I just want to wish you all the luck. No problem. Fatim, Fatuma, so Fatuma Shade is the humanitarian unit manager at Oxfam and uh, best of luck. You too. And thank you for having me and for bringing attention to such a, a dire situation. This is the Shift Podcast. People always say things like, it's the end of an era. They throw that around all the time. Whenever something gets discontinued or someone retires or dies, uh, the phrase end of an era gets thrown around a lot in technology, especially. But a week ago last Tuesday, something happened, which I think is a huge end of an era kind of deal. In Seattle, the Boeing plant delivered its last 747 jumbo jet. They're not making any more 747s. Uh, and it was a plane that revolutionized air travel and in the process changed the world. And with me now is the executive director of the BC Aviation Council, Dave Frank. Thanks for being here, Dave. Evening, Martin. I hear you want to talk about the queen of the skies, the Boeing 747. Yes, the queen of the sky. I, I don't think there has ever been a passenger jet or uh, an airplane with quite the high profile of the 747. It's kind of the uh, the rock star of airplanes. Um, why is that? It was the first uh, jumbo jet. 
and it was an order of magnitude ahead of its predecessors, like the uh, the four-inch and uh, uh, Douglas DC-8 and, uh, and the 707 from Boeing itself. Uh, the, the, to put it in perspective, the 747 was twice as big as its predecessor, the 707. Quite an amazing aircraft. Right. And I guess, I mean, they talk about how it revolutionized air travel. Um, was it mainly just because it could carry so many passengers? Did that make it cheaper? Uh, partly. Uh, I like what Dr. David Gillen at the Center of Transportation Studies at UBC says. Uh, the 747 democratized uh, aviation. Uh Back then, uh, in the 70s, aviation was very restricted, uh, especially internationally. And, and what was happening were so many small aircraft like the 707 were coming into airports like JFK in New York, that Pan Am, uh, which is no longer here, uh, knew that there was a, a serious congestion problem. And so they leaned on Boeing to make a bigger aircraft. That bigger aircraft came out there. And there was a little bit, because it was a restricted environment, of build it and they will come. So uh, it, it was uh, on the forefront of the trends towards globalization, the opening up of air agreements. It was a perfectly timed aircraft, unlike the uh, uh, jumbo aircraft that followed it. Mm -hmm. So tell us, give us a tour of a 747, the queen of the sky. What makes the 747 so special? I like the, the 100 uh, 747 was delivered to Air Canada and they put it on display in their hangar in Montreal for a weekend and 66,000 people came out to view it. It was, <laughs> it, uh, this was back in the, in about 71, 72. And it was sitting beside a Vicon, uh, which was a very popular turboprop aircraft at the time. And it was described as that being a, a frog beside an ox, referring to a French uh, poet fable uh, from the 1600s. Um, what amazed people the most was unlike the Douglas DC-8, which had two seats by two seats, this aircraft had the audacity to have three and three and three seats uh, in a row. And that's what really struck people, plus the, the iconic uh, extra level uh, above its nose. Right, because it has the sort of the bump at the top right the at the near the front and is that what that is that's because you go up there and there's like a bar up there uh the, it was actually a challenge for the first uh airlines to fly the 747 what the heck do we do with this second floor there have been disco nightclubs up there there have been stand-up bars there's been premium first class they have tried everything but as the aircraft evolves um, over its 53 years from the 100 series to the 200 series, the three, the four, um, and, the, uh, and the eight series, uh, that dome got long, longer on the top. And then people felt more comfortable about what they could do with it. 
they just put more seats in it. Right. Right. Yeah. Of course they crammed more people in it. Um, and what, what is the deal with, uh, the whole idea of first class and uh, business class? Was that originally in air travel when they first started flying people around or is that a later development, this whole idea of first class? The, the multiple class, uh, came later. First class was first. Uh, when air travel first traveled, you dressed up. It was an amazing event. You went island hopping across the Pacific or the Atlantic to get to Europe or Asia. Everyone was first class. When I say democratize, it, it opened up so many seats for uh, middle class people. It connected families that had made the ocean journeys from Europe to to the New World uh, and the like. Um, uh, it, it connected them after, in some cases, decades. So a profound social change, a profound economic change, and not just with passengers, Martin, with freight. This aircraft still exists today uh, as a very active freighter because that nose, that iconic nose can open up and you can put a piece of freight that's 185 feet long into that aircraft through that nose. Whoever thought that up was a genius. Um, and, And so... Although there are only, as of March, three passenger airlines in the world flying the 747, it has another 20, 25 years of life as as a cutting edge freighter in uh, serving our, our global supply chains. Interesting, because I noticed the one that was just made at Boeing this past week in Seattle was sold to a cargo company. So they're absolutely to uh, to Atlas, and then they immediately flipped it to Kunanagel, who is a uh, a freight forwarder. Freight forwarders are huge companies that most people have never heard about. They buy space on on aircraft and ocean vessels, and they move freight around the world. Um, so in Kunanagel's case, out of Germany, so much they need a seven four seven, which can haul a hundred tons of freight uh to uh destinations around the world the other thing reason it revolutionized the industry is as uh back then in the 70s two engine jets could not fly across the atlantic or the pacific they had to fly constantly uh there was fear that if an engine went out they would go down so the, the world was developed by these four engine aircraft uh, and and this is the last one. Uh, the 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 four engine jet aircraft no longer exists because engine technology has advanced so far. Yeah, it's interesting because I remember when I was little and older people would talk about flying. Some people wouldn't even married couples wouldn't even fly together because if the plane went down. Oh, uh, uh, the president and vice president of the United States never fly in the same aircraft for the same reason. Um, it's uh, uh, traveling by air um, is however you measure it, uh, the safest way to travel. Your your most dangerous part of your journey is to and from the airport. Right. 
And and speaking of cargo and the how big the 747 is, um, I'm always amazed when I see these, uh, you know, like uh, Lipizzan stallions that cost, you know, $250,000 and someone is uh, moving a horse around the world. And I've seen them in planes and I'm guessing a 747. What's the biggest thing that you can think of off the top of your mind that gets hauled around on a plane? Oh, uh, specialty equipment for the resource sector. Um, the uh, whether it's the uh, the oil and gas energy sector or uh, hydroelectricity, um, and in those cases, even the seven four seven may not be big enough. Um, the largest cargo aircraft in the world, the Antonov two twenty five, was destroyed by the Russians in the early days of the Ukrainian war. And, and it's no longer there. That was the largest specialty cargo aircraft in the world. And it, it's paid many, it, it paid many a visit to, uh, to Canada to support uh, real specialty, mostly resource sector indus- industrial work. Wow, that's it. And I, I that has such a huge impact on our lives, I guess, in terms of supply chain and all that stuff. Uh, specialty supply chain, yes. Yeah. Um, our our standard uh, is Canadian Tire getting my sale item here on time supply chain. <laughs> the uh, the seven four seven and the belly hold in other passenger aircraft combined with marine freight. Uh, that's what makes that happen, so that your sale item is there and you don't have to get one of those little vouchers. And I'm guessing a seven forty seven takes a lot of fuel. So how does the 747 compare to the planes that are being used now uh, that are kind of replacing it as passenger jets, especially? Um, how does it re- compare in fuel economy and stuff like that? Um, it's one of the reasons uh, it was. it's a four engine aircraft. So uh, it's the older generation when it comes to fuel economy. Um, the the Europeans bet that the Airbus 380, which is actually a bigger passenger aircraft than the 747, would take the market by storm. It did not. Uh, there were 251 Airbus 380s, and it stopped production a couple of years ago. The 747, there's been 1,574 built. The trend as markets and globalization have opened up because people from Canada want to fly to Dublin. They don't want to fly to London Heathrow and then fly from there up to Dublin. So the trend is towards slightly smaller, long-haul aircraft like the 787, uh, Boeing 787, which has been extremely successful. Boeing called the trend in the mark, the future trend replacing the 747 correctly. Airbus did not. Right. And and is that the the sort of the future of air travel, you know, more like a Greyhound bus, you know, cramming everybody in um, and just n- not as as elegant. And I guess you, you get what you pay for. But um, what do you see as the sort of future of of how we're going to use the the airplane? M- many people um, view it that way. Uh, the largest air carrier in the world now in europe sorry is is ryanair uh with over 500 aircraft and there you pay for everything i mean they they once even thought about charging to go to the washroom on their aircraft but they backed away from that thank god (laughs) um the um uh but 
I'm starting to spot a counter trend. Uh, the Porter Airlines here in Canada, the Jet Blues and the Alaska Airlines in the U.S. Um, some of us are starting to call them value carriers, where um, you you get a little bit more than you expect for your money, a little bit more legroom, you get free Wi-Fi, you you heaven forbid domestically you get a you get a beer put in front of you. Uh, this is. Um, uh, it, it, the, the market is always evolving. So if the customers want more than bare, bare bones, there will be airlines evolving. It's a very entrepreneurial industry. There will be airlines that will figure out how to serve that demand. And I just heard a, a commercial, I think it was Air France, and they were talking about how everybody gets a glass of champagne in every class. It's in, the, uh, it's in the commercial. It, it, it's, uh, yes, I heard that same commercial. <laughs> yeah. And, and you, uh, it, it's, um, uh, as I say, airlines are always trying uh, to do better. And, and I would not assume that race to the bottom as far as service is the future of the airline industry. Right. And as somebody from the BC Aviation Council, um, you probably hear a lot of people complaining about air. Everybody loves to complain about the airline experience, but it is pretty miraculous how they can get us around. They can get me to Montreal and in, in, you know, in a very easy way to visit my son and go to Europe. And it, it really is miraculous what air travel does for our lives. What, what is miraculous is the culture of safety in the industry. Um, the elephant in the room is, is the disaster that occurred in the snowstorms over the holiday seasons here in Canada and the United States and elsewhere in the, on the planet. But as one of my colleagues said to me, Dave, nobody died. <laughs> You know, and and it's it it really is safety first. Uh, it 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 uh, uh, it can ruin a lot of people's days, but uh, being safe is always job one in our industry. Right. And b before I let you go, we have to talk about uh, the seven forty seven and how cool it is. Um, and a, a thing I have to mention, that's the plane that they used for Air Force One. They still use for Air Force One, right? Oh, well, yes, uh, there are two 747s um, that are frequently designated Air Force One. They are not Air Force One. It is who, whichever aircraft or helicopter the president is on is designated Air Force One. Oh, so I see. they are frequently used and designated Air Force One. And those, those are mobile command centers. Uh, other cool things. It, uh, there was a version of the 747 that uh, flew the space shuttle around mm -hmm. that people have forgotten. That that piggyback picture is kind of iconic of the shuttle on top of the 747. Um, there was a version of the 747 SP, which was a cattle car uh, used heavily by Japan Airlines. And they would fly hundreds of golfers from Tokyo to Okinawa. They would do their round of golf, and then they fly back on this special high-capacity short-range version of the 747. So it it has been, um, it, it is a flexible, 
uh, dynamic and it was an always evolving aircraft. And uh, there are only three passenger airlines in the world, but you'll still see them late at night moving freight uh, around the globe. We are celebrating the last 747 to come off the line. The last one built uh, at Boeing in Seattle it was sold to a cargo company. Do you, do you know how much it sold for? How much it cost to buy that 747? Oh, they're, they're really secretive about that kind of thing. Right. Um, uh, uh, and Atlas uh, has 51 of them in their fleet. So they right. get the bulk, bulk discount. Right. But the retail <laughs> value of a 747 is somewhere around $175 million U.S. last time I checked. Wow. Well, uh, it's a cool plane and uh, it revolutionized the sky. So here's to the 747. And uh, Dave Frank, Executive Director of the BC Aviation Council. Thanks for talking to us. It was really interesting. No problems, Martin. Have a good evening. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you? Are you? Are you? Okay. 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 Are you okay with handshakes? Ah, are you okay art. with handshakes? I what, what's your average uh, good to bad handshake? Like uh, I'm at I'm at about maybe eighty percent. Eighty percent of your handshakes are good handshakes. Yeah, and then twenty percent are uncomfortable. Like I mm -hmm. get a bad grip or something, and yep. then or it, you're in. Yeah, it doesn't work out. Maybe seventy thirty. Seventy thirty. I would say I probably have a good. 80 20 70 30 as well although the thing is you don't really remember a good handshake you remember the bad ones that's and true i can remember i'll never forget this my dad took me to a dealership that he used to work with and his old boss was still working there and i had never met him before and he got up to shake my hand and he said careful i have gout and i was pretty young i had no idea what gout was so when he went to shake his hand i put zero pressure whatsoever i literally just had a completely limp hand and went up and down yeah. and it felt so it was kind of like giving yourself a handshake if your other hand was asleep that's what it <laughs> felt like it was bizarre and i feel like he was weirded out with it in the moment i was weirded out with it and i'll, I'll never forget it but for the most part handshakes yeah i don't know Good i mean if you, you tell somebody you have gout like i warn you i have gout they're going to give you a really limp handshake I, yeah, or maybe it maybe it was exactly what he was hoping for. I have absolutely no idea. I certainly wasn't going to ask him in the moment. <laughs> yeah, because gout can be very painful. Yeah, as, as we all know, as I've come to learn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, of course, when you're talking about handshakes, uh, everybody's talking about this one. I mean, uh, the internet's a buzz. Uh, as Canadians witnessed, uh, probably one of the most awkward handshakes in political history. And the handshake is such a big part of of politics. You know, you, you shake yeah. someone's hand, you smile for the camera. Uh, Alberta's Premier, Danielle Smith, who is not exactly a fan of Justin Trudeau, uh, met the Prime Minister today, the first time. And man, it was uncomfortable to watch. Uh, yep. What... You were going to say something? Oh, no. I was the, yep, yeah. Un was uncomfortable to watch. And I've watched it. You know, I, I've been working 
these past few hours, and I've still seen it about <laughs> ten times. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's kind of it's just awkward, and and you you look at it, and you wonder why is it awkward? What's going on there? Uh, because what happened with this handshake? Uh, it literally sucked the life out of the room and the internet. An outstretched hand from Justin Trudeau to Premier Danielle Smith. This handshake marks the duo's first official meeting. I'm uh, delighted to be able to have an opportunity to talk about some areas of common interest. It happened ahead of a broader health care discussion between the Prime Minister and Canada's Premiers. Smith expressed optimism that the duo could find shared aspirations, and Trudeau committed to discussions surrounding how to support energy workers in Alberta. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> that was Global's Morgan Black. It's worth pointing out that this is a bit of a pattern with Alberta's premiers, uh, Rachel Notley, Jason Kenney, and now Danielle Smith, all have very awkward photos with the prime minister. It's just yeah, an Alberta thing. Now, I think it's important that I point out that uh, Ryan wrote this. And Ryan wrote, he wrote, it's just an Alberta thing. And uh, Ryan, you're from Alberta. Yeah, I'm in Calgary, so I can I can <laughs> I can say that it really is an Alberta thing, and and the each of them are unique. Rachel Notley looks kind of frozen and not really sure what to do. Jason Kenney is giving death glare to Trudeau, and in Daniel Smith's photo op, it's a mutual disdain. I think is the energy Trudeau's masking it with the Trudeau smile. Danielle is not. Yeah, <laughs> that's the that's the difference. Because I, but that's I think that's why it's so awkward. And oh. I think what Justin Trudeau would love more than anything is to have a picture of him and uh, Danielle smiling, and then someone takes a picture, and it looks like everything's great. And I think she yeah. knew in the back of her mind that uh, she didn't want to be part of some photo op with the prime minister. And uh, I don't know. And, and maybe um, Trudeau, because usually he, he kind of finesses his way into these situations. Maybe he's losing his touch. I don't know. That's maybe. Kinda... Or I just, I just think these two, I just think Smith and Trudeau really don't like each other. And there's just no way that they can, you know, you know the political <laughs> like mutually agreement thing can only go so far. I feel like in certain circumstances, <laughs> uh, especially when uh, Smith has been so outspoken yeah. when it comes to her opinion on Trudeau. So, um, and also the fact that they that was the first time they've met like professionally too. It just was like a culmination of just like this was never going to be a pleasant photo op, <laughs> never. Yeah, no, it and, was never uh, going to be good. It's no, true. the memes are excellent though on oh, I, Twitter, and fantastic use of that image, which is the, the the best part of politics in 2023 are the memes that people create. Yeah, no kidding. Are you okay with working overtime? Working overtime. Working. I haven't worked overtime in a really long time because, no. like, when I used to work retail. You know, you wouldn't get overtime shifts very often because they don't want to pay you all that extra money. Um, but, you know, there are certain times where you have to do it. And, uh, you know, they, that, that money can really add up. And it, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty nice when you look at that paycheck, especially when you're just doing minimum wage. Uh, it, it, can, it can look really nice, although you can't burn yourself out, right? That's the, yeah. that's the fine line. I mean, doing this show is technically overtime for me. So uh, we're like at least late night, but I'm happy to late do night. it because it's so fun. Yeah. 
It's there's it's no funner word. job on radio than doing the shift. <laughs> That's the, pretty sweet. No, it's true because it's it's late at night and it's I don't know. It's a nice time to be talking to people. Somehow, it, yeah, absolutely. You just we get to have fun on, here now at for me two thirty five in the morning. It, it, it's pretty cool. I wouldn't yeah. really consider it overtime. But I remember working overtime, man. I, I worked at the oh, yeah. po- I worked at the pop shop in Richmond, British Columbia, many, many, many years ago when I was uh, in high school. And uh, the pop shop was a place where you you uh, I, I think they still have them, but it was a place where you would buy pop, and it was it was off brand, you know, mm-hmm. cola, root beer, and all that stuff. But it was a little bit cheaper than the than the brands like uh, Coca-Cola and Pepsi and stuff. So I worked in the bottling department and uh, it was, it was uh, insane work. And then in the summertime, they would have the thing going and uh, the boss who owned the place, he'd be like, Hey, can everybody work until uh, midnight tonight? And we were just young, stupid kids. And uh, we got time and a half or whatever. And so we did. And I remember working all nighters, like literally until 6 a.m. And uh, it was insane. And it was fun because you're so young and, you know, it's the summer and you're a teenager. But uh, definitely... Yeah, prob- you can take it. And probably against labor laws, too. <laughs> was that. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But uh, when it comes to overtime, a woman cleaning a jail cell worked an extreme overtime shift in Florida. <laughs> I don't know how things work in Florida, which from your description sounds like a colorful, lawless swamp. (laughs) Yeah, so the 72-year-old woman, custodian, was just doing her job cleaning, but she was cleaning a jail cell uh, when she accidentally locked herself in. For three days, she was stuck with no food, no insulin for her diabetes, and she could only get water from a small faucet. The woman was locked in a cell, but not where you might think, like here at the county jail. She was actually on the 23rd floor of the Orange County Courthouse in a holding cell. That's where they'll sometimes hold people accused of committing a crime to go before a judge. Now, the building is closed on Saturdays and Sundays. The records show there should have been security here the whole time. According to the report, the woman left her cell phone on her cleaning cart outside and no one could hear her knocking. Deputies say she had a minor cut on her finger from trying to get out, but did not go to the hospital. That was from Fox 35. She was provided with food in order to help adjust her blood sugar levels after being freed. Uh, Orange County officials said uh, on Tuesday that the lock on the holding cell was found to be defective and has since been replaced. (laughs) (laughs) I would hope so. And I guess the big question is, would she get overtime for the whole three days? I, yeah. And I looked, I really looked to see if I could find any indication on like if she got any kind of compensation, but I couldn't see anything. And this is tough because she locked herself in. So that was her fault. But as the report said there, there should have been security or someone there that could have hurt her. So I imagine that the employer could see a lawsuit and would probably just end up giving her some cash on the side. But I imagine those were probably the most agonizing three days of that seven-year-old woman's seventy-year-old woman's life. Yeah, just three days, no food. Thankfully, water with diabetes. This yeah. is terrifying. And a jail cell. 
That's yeah, a nightmare. I see That's a big, a, a big, uh, a big lawsuit, or at least a settlement. Maybe you know, like I'm sure they would be quick to jump on a settlement yeah. for that. Because if the lock I will was keep de- an eye on this, though. if the lock was defective, then uh, that's a problem. Are you okay with woodpeckers? Woodpeckers. We had a woodpecker at my old house in Northwest Calgary that was so loud, so loud. I mean, it's just it's. It's the most, you know, magpies are the worst bird, right? They're the mm-hmm. worst. They're the most annoying, aggressive. They suck. And then there's seagulls. You know, they're just doing their thing, right. but they're going to get in your way. And then and then there's woodpeckers, which are very beautiful looking birds that are, you know, are really interesting within the ecosystem. But when they are pecking away at your roof or your house, the sound is like, you know, putting a drill bit on your at your temple at four o'clock in the morning. And um, that's no fun. Yeah, because we have these birds. I don't think they're woodpeckers, but they're a similar breed. And I think they eat bugs from poles, from uh, phone telephone poles. And so they, they're just like clack, 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 just picking out at the bugs. And it's really, really, time. really, really annoying. Um, and when you think of a woodpecker, uh, you probably think of, of two sounds. This one. Or, of course, this one. <laughs> That's the, the annoying one. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, Woody. I don't know anybody. Like, people talk about how much they love, you know, Warner Brothers cartoons and mm-hmm. they, you know, they love uh, Ren and Stimpy and they, they just love animation. But I don't hear people talking about how much they love Woody Woodpecker. No. And, you know, a few, I believe in 2015, they made like a, a Woody the Woodpecker movie that was so terrible, it went direct to DVD. And when you think about it, like Tom and Jerry had a movie recently and uh, Looney Tunes, like they still draw people in. But Woody, no. I feel like Woody has was definitely like a product of its animation time. And it's all about how annoying that laugh is. I think we're fine to leave that one in the past. Yeah, yeah, because it's one of the most unpleasant characters. <laughs> but I, I guess a woodpecker itself is kind of, uh, kind of annoying. And a pest control yeah. company uh, had to deal with a very persistent woodpecker in California uh, last week after it caused some serious damage to a home. And uh, I warn you, uh, this following news report has some serious puns in it. A pest control company had their hands full. Literally, after a woodpecker's impeccable work caused damage to a home in Sonoma County. You got to see this. Nick's extreme pest control, this is extreme, was called to a house in Glen Ellen, and here's where it gets nutty. <laughs> Workers say the woodpecker was making holes to store its food, and the food kept falling into spaces in the walls. Then when they cut into the wall, 700 pounds of acorns came flowing out, enough to fill eight large garbage bags that pun-filled report from abc7 um and the company posted on facebook that uh, there were eight bags of uh acorns they weren't in bags but eight bags worth of acorns stuffed in the wall um fun fact there are 14 different species of woodpecker in canada so interesting if any one of those would store 700 
pounds <laughs> of acorns in your drywall. Yeah. I mean, it was probably very insulative. Probably be good. Who knows? Yeah. Keep yeah. you warm. Maybe. Yeah. Are you okay with zombies? Uh, you know, the zombie trend, it's got to be done right. You know, I love classics, you know, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, that kind of stuff. And Lucio Fulci, or Fulci, uh, Italian, you know, zombie movies, those are really great. And then, you know, the modern stuff, it's hit or miss. But The Last of Us, that show on right now, and, and that whole idea of, of zombies, that really clicks. So I feel like that's the kind of thing with zombie movies. They're either really entertaining and really fun, or they're just really boring and you get kind of done with it. I am impressed at how durable the whole zombie concept is. Yeah, it's kind of, it, it will be here forever. It, as long as people are making movies, zombie movies will be a genre someone tackles. It just, it, it, it even though we've seem to have run out of ideas mostly. Yeah, and, and it, it makes no sense. But for the second time this year, we have a, uh, a Are You Okay With that has to deal with a person being sent to a funeral home despite not being dead. Uh, an 82-year-old woman who, quote, died at a Long Island nursing home over the weekend uh, gave the funeral staff a bit of a scare uh, when she was found to be breathing about 49 minutes after she arrived. Like, what? Like, that's my first my first thought. I'm thinking, how'd she get from this nursing home to the funeral parlor? Like, what was the conditions? Who called her family? That's Andrew Lieb, a Long Island-based legal analyst and personal injury attorney. He pointed out that last month, at this facility near Des Moines, Iowa, a nearly identical case happened. Late last week, the facility was fined $10,000 by the state. What's the point of a law that just gives a slap on the wrist, something so egregious that there's negligence, infliction of emotional distress, false imprisonment. Even the public health law has rules about nursing homes, and that's why the AG is investigating. And Ryan, you guys on the shift just covered a story like this a few weeks ago. Uh, it was a yep. 66-year-old woman and uh, yep. believed to be dead, placed in a zipped body bag and Oof. taken to a nearby funeral home, and they found she was breathing, and they called 911. And We have a recording of that 911 call somewhere, and it's pretty, uh, yeah, this woman's not dead. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah, and, uh, and you know, it, it's not a happy ending that she's not dead, <laughs> because uh, she was taken to a nearby hospital, returned to hospice care, and later died. Because that's, oh, I didn't know. Oh, no. <laughs> that's just the way life is. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 